good morning to Crossview Church. Good to have you here. I'd also like to take a moment to thank and welcome those by video at Wood County Jail. To our friends at Wood County Jail, we're glad you are watching us by video as well. So with that, would you please bow your heads with me as I pray? Father God, we thank you for the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit. We thank you for the gift of your Word. And now we ask that you'd use all of these things in this moment, all these uh, gifts in this moment to bring us closer to you and to transform us. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there was a time uh, when I was in Washington, D.C., at some chaplain meetings and chaplain training, and uh, I woke up early uh, on the day I'm supposed to fly home. I took a red-eye flight to save some money, and I don't know if you've ever been there, but that early morning time when you're getting ready to get on a flight, I don't know about you, I just feel awful every one of those mornings. It's just like, oh, it's too early, and then it's too early to go do this. And so I packed my bags, I got all together in my room, did all the double checks, went down to the lobby to grab some continental breakfast and head out and get some coffee to wake up a little bit. And uh, as I went down, I noticed that there were probably three or four uh, people, members of Congress, who happened to be staying at that same Hampton Inn I was. And I could tell they are members of Congress because they had the pin, they were dressed nice, and they had these staffers around them. And I remember I grabbed my coffee, and I'm pouring my coffee, and I'm kind of trying to look around to see if I recognize any of these members of Congress, if I can tell what state they're from or who they are or whatever, and I'm trying to be very, you know, stealth as I do this, and I grabbed my coffee and I got the alert on my phone that my Uber was outside waiting to take me to the airport, so I grabbed my stuff, and I, I wasn't that hungry, but I wanted something, so I said, I'll just grab a piece of fruit and head out, and as I'm leaving, there's a bowl of fruit kind of on this table, so I, I grab an apple out of the bowl of fruit, and I get it to about here, and I realize it's a fake apple. What do you do, right? Do you steal it? Just put it in your pocket and keep walking? Do you put it back? Well, there's a member of Congress and their staff who got a kick out of the thing and saw the whole thing happening. To the fact they said, you know, there's a real one over in the other room if you want. And I just put it on the table and I took off and got out of there. Get out of the situation. I'm mistaking something that was fake for something that I thought was real. It's possible to have a fake artificial faith in Jesus Christ, but it looks very real. And that was Paul's main concern when he wrote what he wrote that we're going to look at today. Chris did a great job last week introducing this section of the book of Romans, and he talked about how chapter we're in a series going through the book of Romans, and in chapter 9, 10, and 11 are kind of like a book within the book. Chapter 9 talks about God's work in saving us and bringing us close to him. Chapter 10 talks about our responsibility in coming. And chapter 11 kind of fuses them together. And so today we're in chapter 10. And just by reminder, when we started this series way back when, um, the context of what's going on here is that there was this church in this city called Rome. And the church was made up of people who were raised Jewish and then they heard about Jesus, and they gave their lives to Jesus. And now they're in this church, and they're wrestling with how much is relating to God about being Jewish, and how much is about Jesus. 
And then you had these people called Gentiles who were not Jewish people who were coming from different pagan lifestyles and they gave their lives to Jesus and they're trying to figure out how do we live this new thing called the Christian life. And, and both of these groups are in this church in Rome that Paul writes this letter to. And then in the middle of all that, the emperor gets jittery and he's worried about a revolt from the Jewish people to try to overturn the Roman Empire. So he kicks out all the Jewish people for a few years. And in that time, the church then is made up of all Gentiles. So now some time passes, and now the Jewish people are coming back to the church. And they've all, Jew and Gentile, have grown in different places. They're all kind of growing in different levels of maturity. And now they're coming back, and you can see that this is going to be a real mess. And so Paul is writing this letter, Romans, to unify them around the essential of the Christian faith, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so that's what's happening when we are looking at the text we're going to look at today. Paul's main concern in the passage in front of us is that there were Jewish people who think they have this vibrant faith in God, but when they look at their faith through the lens of what they're seeing in the Gentile people, it looks like their faith is more artificial than real. So you might be here saying, so what? What is the faith or the false faith of two ethnic groups that happened in first century have anything to do with me in 2023? I believe much in every way. And the verses we're going to look at have also transformed lives of thousands and thousands of people throughout the centuries. When we're going to look at what we're going to look at today is going to help to guard us in our faith in Jesus Christ, if you're here and you're a believer. What we're going to look at today is going to encourage us to stay focused on Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, and in doing so, live out a faith that's Trinitarian, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. What we're going to look at today is going to help us live the Christian life with more fullness. Because what we're going to see here today is that real faith is a result of believing and living the gospel of Jesus Christ. Real faith is a result of living and believing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Without the gospel, there is no faith. Without the gospel, there's no Christian life. The further humans stray from the gospel, the further they stray from God. And so what we're going to see in the passage today is absolutely crucial. So if you have a Bible, I encourage you to open it up to Romans chapter 9. And we're going to be looking at the first uh, few verses at the end of chapter 9 and then going into chapter 10. So Romans chapter 9, if you're, I'm using the NIV version if you are, have an electronic Bible. If you're using the Bibles we provide here in the worship center, it's on page 918. Paul is beginning here to explain true Christianity from false Christianity. And in doing so, he's pointing out a common gospel failure. A common gospel failure. Let's read verses 30 to 33 of Romans chapter 9. What then shall we say? That the Gentiles who do not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith, 
But the people of Israel who pursued the law as a way of righteousness have not attained their goal? Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, see, I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. Paul opens up by saying that the Gentiles who became followers of Jesus Christ did so not because they were trying to follow the Old Testament Torah law. He said they didn't attain their righteousness that way. They attained their righteousness through faith. They turned from their sinful ways to God. They trusted Jesus and said, what you did at the cross is what saves me, not but what I can do on my own merit. And then they followed Jesus. They turned, they trusted, they followed. They said, Jesus, you are the ruler of all, king of kings, lord of lords, and you will be the leader of my life and I will obey. That's what the Gentiles did. And he contrasts that now with the people of Israel. Look at verse 31. But the people of Israel who pursued the law as a way of righteousness have not attained their goal. Why? Because they did it as a means of trying to show everybody how great they are. Or they did it as a means of trying to keep the spiritual scoreboard in their head of all the good things I've done and the good things will outweigh my bad. They kept this record in their heart and mind of how they deserve to attain perfection in God. And Paul says, you're never ever going to get to heaven or have a relationship with God with that mindset. In fact, Paul says, while they were trying to be good holy people in their own strength, they stumbled over the true Savior, Jesus Christ. And he quotes Isaiah 28, 16, in that process. God provided a way to be saved through Jesus, but the Israelites failed to believe in him. Being saved, becoming a Christian, becoming a follower of Jesus, having a life transformed by God, all of those things are centered on Jesus Christ and him alone. That is the only way you are saved. That is the only way you have right standing before God. Being righteous in God's sight is about having a growing relationship with Jesus, not about following a bunch of rules and not attempting to make ourselves right before God through our conduct or through things that we do. Bottom line, if you miss Jesus, you miss salvation. It's all centered on Jesus. So many people in the world are trying to earn their way into heaven, are trying to earn their way into God's favor by making sure their good outweighs their bad. It's like they have the scale in their mind, and if they pour more on the good side than the bad, they hope someday they'll get to heaven. That is not the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that will not get you into heaven. We have to be aware of that. A human being at their absolute best is not good enough to earn favor to be in right relationship with God. You don't have it. I don't have it. The Bible says in order to have right relationship with God, we have to be absolutely perfect. 
We have to have sinless perfection to be in right relationship with God here on earth and to be in right relationship with God when we die and we see him face to face. To get into heaven when we die and see Christ face to face, in order to get in, you have to be absolutely sinless and absolutely perfect. That's what the Bible teaches. You feel the tension of that, don't you? I know I do. Because none of us are perfect. None of us have what it takes. We need a different perfection to get into heaven. We need a perfection that we can't produce or manufacture or come up with. We need a perfection that's outside of ourselves. And that's where Jesus Christ comes in. Jesus came to earth. He lived the perfect life. He lived a life that you and I couldn't live. He lived it in sinless perfection. And then he went to the cross. And when he went to the cross, there was an amazing exchange that took place. He took our sin and our imperfection upon himself and paid the penalty that we were supposed to pay before a holy God for our sin. He absorbed the penalty of God's wrath on the cross. And then in exchange, when we come before him and we turn and we trust and we follow, we have this conversion of our heart. When that happens, just as he took our sin and paid the penalty, he now gives us his perfection that he attained by living that perfect life. It's like we sang about, there's this crimson robe that's now made white that wraps us up. So now when we die and we stand before God, if we've given our life to Jesus, if we turned and we trusted and we followed, when we die and stand before God the Father, we don't stand in our merit. You don't want to stand in the good things you did. It won't work. It won't be a good situation. Instead, because of Jesus, if you've turned and trusted and followed, you stand in the sinless perfection of Jesus Christ. And you are brought into right relationship with God. See, that's the gospel. You can't earn it. You can't add to it. It's strictly Jesus and Jesus alone. This summer, I was up in Door County, and I was walking along this Green Bay area, and there's all these little tiny shops and stands and this one little stand had a sign and the sign said in God we trust all others pay cash no cards no checks it's cash or that's it that's all they would accept was cash the death of Jesus on the cross is the only payment God accepts for our imperfect lives we can't generate enough payment to pay the debt we owe And Jesus Christ paid it all, so why should we even try? The motivation and heart and energy shouldn't be put into us trying to earn our way to heaven, but rather resting in Jesus and getting to know Jesus because he paid it all for us. That's what Paul's getting at here. I don't know about you, but I know that to be true as a Christian. And yet... There at times is this subtle knee-jerk reaction to want to try to earn God's love. I still have this subtle thing in me that every now and then wants to try to earn God's love. It's like sometimes it's so easy to throw away amazing grace and try to earn God's love in our own effort, isn't it? 
And that's why Paul is calling us back to say even as Christians, we can easily slip into this mentality where we try to do something to earn our way to heaven. And God is inviting us to something so much greater than that. He's inviting us to a life infused with Jesus Christ. And Paul believes that's the best life any human being could ever live here on earth. So much so that we see his gospel desire as we continue. Look at chapter 10, verses 1 to 4. He says, brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. That's what he wants. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the culmination of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes, who trusts, who places their faith in Jesus Christ. Paul's expressing his intense desire, first and foremost, for the Jewish people who don't know Jesus, who, or who have made some sort of profession, but they have an artificial faith and not a real one, and his longing for them is this intense burden that they would get to the real thing. You see his heart for those who are immature or those who are far from God. We should never, ever, ever look down at those who are far from God or those who are struggling in their faith. Our attitude towards unbelievers should never, ever be superiority, but humility. Amazing grace that saves us should be amazing grace that humbles us. And it should also cause us to long that others would know that amazing grace. C.S. Lewis said he had two lists in his journal. He had a list of people who were following Christ, who turned, who trusted, who followed And he prayed that they would be sustained and encouraged in the power of God. And then he had a list of people who didn't know Jesus Christ as their Savior, who haven't trusted, who haven't turned, who haven't followed. And he made a list of them and he prayed that they would move from list B to list A. And he said that he would take great comfort when he saw someone move from the list of not knowing Christ to knowing Christ. We should live our lives in a way that make it easy for people to move from the list of not knowing Christ to the list of knowing Christ. We should be the gospel that's being lived out in front of them. Now, one of the things we hear from our society when it comes to spiritual matters is that it doesn't really matter what you believe as long as you believe it with all your heart. If you're sincere, that's all that matters. But look at verse 2 of chapter 10. Paul says, For I can testify about them, talking about the Israelites. They are zealous for God. They really love God. But their zeal is not based on knowledge. Eugene Peterson's translation of the message says, They were doing everything exactly backward. They were good at what they were doing, but they weren't doing the right thing. See, you, 
You can't just have zeal and passion. You have to have the knowledge of what comes with it. It's football season, right? I think we've all have seen this, probably more so in kind of the little league football camps, although I've, it does happen occasionally in professional football and college level and high school level. But have you ever seen a, per, a person playing football or a child playing football and they get the ball and they start running for the end zone, but the problem is they're going to the wrong end zone. Right? And if you look at it, they have the zeal, man. They have the passion. It's the greatest moment of their life. They're going to cross that end zone, and they're running as hard as they can. And every single person watching from that team's fan base is saying, turn around, turn around. You're going the wrong way. That's what Paul's doing here. They have the zeal, and they're running it. But they don't have the right thing. They're running in a direction of, I'm going to do all I can to earn my favor before God in my terms. I'm going to obey all the different rules so that I have a righteousness. And he's saying you're running the opposite of the gospel, which is, I can't make my own standing before God. I need a Savior. I need one who is perfect in the eyes of God, who will give me the righteousness that he has. Paul's desire and heart is that they would know the true gospel that Jesus saves and they would passionately follow after him. So what is this true knowledge they were missing? Paul outlines it in what I call the gospel way. Let's look at chapter 10, verses 5 to 7. Now, just a little warning. We're going to dive into 5 and 7. 5 and 7 are kind of those verses of what in the world is he talking about here? Okay, We'll get through it but you got to hang on, all right? So let's look at verses 5 to 7 of chapter 10. Moses writes this about the righteousness that is by the law. The person who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that is by faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend to heaven, that is, bring Christ down, or who will descend to the deep, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. What in the world is he talking about there? What Paul is doing is he's taking two verses, one from the Old Testament book of Leviticus, another from the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy, and he's speaking the language of the Israelite here. They would know even better than you and I what's going on here. They would understand exactly where Paul's going. And what Paul is saying, he's saying two things by using those two, two examples. The first thing he's saying is that if you could follow all the Old Testament laws perfectly, then yes, you would be saved, but you can't do that. There's only one human being that ever did that, and it's Jesus Christ. Secondly, he's saying following the law perfectly is impossible to do. Even if somehow you could reach up to the heavens and get the power of Christ and bring it down, or go to the depth and get the power of Christ and bring it down. The goal isn't for you to get some sort of outside thing like that so you could perform the law perfectly. He's going to say the answer is to rest in Jesus. The answer is to allow Jesus to be the Savior, not us. Look at verses 8 to 13. But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth. It is in your heart. That is the message concerning 
The faith we proclaim. See, these are people who heard the gospel message. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Paul simplifies the Christian life into three words. Jesus is Lord. He is Lord over all. You can lean on him to get you through life. You can lean on him to present you faithfully before God the Father. You can lean on him to carry you through death. And you can lean on him when you are standing before a holy God. That's the only way to live. Jesus is Lord. Verse 10. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. And it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame, for there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord over all, the unity of Christ, and he richly blesses all who call upon him. For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. All you need to do to be saved, all you need to do to become a follower of Jesus is to call on the name of the Lord, to turn Turn means to repent. That you turn from your sin and you turn to a holy God and say, God, I'm sorry for the sins I committed and I want to turn from my ways to you. You trust. You say, Jesus, you died on the cross for me and I believe with my whole heart who you are and what you did and I trust in your work to get me to heaven, not in my own strength. And you follow. You make Jesus the Lord of your life. He now sits on the throne of your heart. You surrender your will to him and you say, you are king of kings and Lord of lords. What you say goes in my life. Your agenda is my agenda and my agenda is submitted to you. That's how you become a Christian. That's how you're saved. And when you do that, God enters your life. The Bible says the Holy Spirit takes up residence in your heart. When you do that, you are now walking like a temple of the Holy Spirit. You are now walking like the house of God. Because the Holy Spirit, God himself, is now residing inside of you. And then God himself, as you continue to grow in Christ, yield your heart to Christ, helps you to live out God's law, to live out God's desire, to live out God's ways. See, now you're living out God's ways, not from some self-imposed, self-disciplined effort, but by a gospel grace-empowered holiness from the Holy Spirit living inside of you. That's the Christian life. That's gospel living. Our mission as a church is to lead people in a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. That's our gospel mission. That's what we're supposed to do as a church here at Crossview Church. Lead people, come alongside people, and lead them into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. All of us are growing in different places, but the idea is to keep growing. This is crucially important. And notice we're leading them not into follow the rules or the law, in a growing relationship with Jesus. Because now we relate to God not by following laws and rules, but we relate to God by having relationship with Jesus. So Paul's getting at here. This is crucially important. Why do we as a church do this? Look at verses 14 and 15. 
How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear someone without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Someone has to declare the gospel. The gospel has to be spoken. Now listen to me. This is a task that's given to every single follower of Jesus Christ. This isn't a task that's given to just pastors. This isn't a task that's given to just missionaries. This is a task declaring the gospel that's given to anyone who is a follower of Jesus, anyone who has turned and trusted and followed. They now have this mission to live out and teach the gospel message. Some do it with a pulpit. Some do it overseas. Some do it in the marketplace. Some do it by building a relationship with your neighbor. Some do it when they go into their hobbies and their areas of life, work, etc. When you go there, you're called to be a carrier of the gospel message if you're a follower of Jesus. You're on mission in those things. It's not just to satisfy you. You're not just existing but you are a carrier of the gospel message. God enters our life and transforms us, and by doing so, we are automatically his witnesses. We are transformed by Jesus, and then we live in ways that point others to Jesus. So finally, Paul writes about the gospel response. Look at verses 16 to 20. But not all the Israelites accepted the good news. Not all of them were saved. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word about Christ. But I asked, did they not hear? Of course they did. Their voice has gone out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. Again I asked, did Israel not understand? First, Moses said, I will make you envious by those who are not a nation. I will make you angry by a nation that has no understanding. And Isaiah boldly says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. And then I think comes the most stunning indictment of all. Paul, quoting the Old Testament again, says, But concerning Israel, God says, all day long, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. All day long, I've held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. See, Paul says in verse 15, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. And here Paul says, but the beauty of God went unrecognized. They missed it. He says, not all accepted this good news. And it's crazy to think about this, that the people of Israel did all they can to try to become righteous by following God's law and not disobeying him. And in the process, they disobeyed God. Because they blew off Jesus Christ. And they tried to do it in their own strength. 
They tried to have favor with God and have merit with God. In the process, they got the opposite of what they were after because they blew off Jesus. It's all about Jesus. They didn't accept God's invitation. And so then Paul goes on assuming the counter-argument. And he says, well, maybe they didn't accept the invitation because they had a good excuse. Maybe they didn't hear the gospel. Verse 18 says, no, they heard the gospel. There's plenty of gospel witness in the Old Testament and the teachings they've had up to this point. So why didn't they believe? Maybe it was because they didn't understand. He says, no, God overcame misunderstanding in the Gentiles and they believed. And then verse 21, we see that amazing picture. All day long I held out my hands. God says, and Israel didn't believe. Why did Israel not believe? It wasn't because they didn't hear. It wasn't because they didn't understand. It was because they were prideful. It was because they were stubborn. It was because they did what was right in their own eyes and said, this is what is right and true. What an indictment. God of heaven says, I hold out my hands. I'm waiting. I give an invitation to come, have a relationship with me that will give you new life now, forgiven in eternity. But I do it to a disobedient and obstinate people because they blew off the way. God gave more revelation and information about his plan to the people of Israel than he ever gave to the Gentiles. And they still turned their back on God's son. And in this situation, those who had less information about God responded better than the Bible experts. Paul is giving stinging words to the Jewish people in this text. Jesus Christ gave stinging words to the leaders and the people of Israel. And don't miss this. The rebuke and the harsh words for the Jewish leaders and the Jewish people was not really about what they did but rather it was about what they loved. It wasn't that they were doing the wrong things, though there's that, but the root of that is they loved the wrong things. They missed the hard affection that was supposed to be set on God, and they set it on themselves. It was more about what they loved than what they did. Because they loved the praise and the accolades people gave when they said, oh, there come the Jewish people, God's chosen people. They loved boasting in all their Bible knowledge. They loved living with all the perks of being Jewish. And this led them to a lie that God must view them in that same way that they see themselves. Blind spot. Major blind spot with eternal ramifications. We can become so easily like them because we chase after all sorts of things because we too love the praise and accolades of people. We too love the comforts of this life that this world gives us. We too long for worldly pleasures and what we do is we set our hearts on these false loves, we have like these quick fixes 
to help make ourselves feel better or feel right or feel approved. And Jesus is offering something so much better, wholeness in Christ. Do you want the quick fix? Or do you want Jesus? Sometimes, even though we profess to be followers of Jesus, we live in ways contrary to that. Our lives can be consumed with worry, and there is no peace. We can be consumed with lust. We can be consumed with fear. We can be consumed with self-centeredness. And what happens then is we live this outer shell of cultural Christianity, but it's not real in our heart. And our faith becomes fake. And you know what? People see that that a mile away. But we know it even greater in our hearts, don't we? Do we really love the Christian faith we profess? Do we really love God? Do we really live God? If we're really honest, I think all of us, myself included, would say many, many times, we fall short of that. But guess what? I have good news. Gospel means good news. And we can come with our failure and our brokenness and all the things that are contrary to God and bring them before Jesus and say, Jesus, I turn to you. I ask forgiveness. I repent. Jesus, I trust you that you are the only Son of God and you died on the cross for me and the only way I'll get to heaven is through what you did. And Jesus, I want to follow you. I'm going to give you my life. I'm going to have you sit on the throne of my heart. Last week we saw that God is sovereign, that he's in complete control and calls those to follow him, but we still must respond. We respond to the gospel by turning and trusting and following. It must be received in order to be saved. Going back to that picture in verse 21, I love that. God is holding out his hands. Are we going to receive the invitation? You see, The goal of the gospel is not just to get to heaven, though you get that, but the goal of the gospel is God himself. He's inviting us into relationship with him. Do you see that? Holding out his hands. And when you surrender your life to him, you find new life. You find forgiveness. You find a righteousness of Jesus that will cover you when you die. And when you die, Jesus carries you into heaven clothed in his righteousness, and you stand before a holy God, not because of things you did in this life, but because you're leaning on Jesus, and he's your everything. All the things we do here in Christian life, prayer, reading the Bible, worship, serving, all those things are a respond to an invitation from God. God's inviting us to be in relationship with him. And we respond. Jesus' invitation was put this way in Matthew 11. He said, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Jesus is saying that to us right now. 
Jesus is giving you and I right now in this moment an invitation. He's saying, come. Come to me. But Jesus, what about this situation? I got this going on. I got this. Come. Come to me. You have no idea what I did. You have no idea what I did. Come to me. Come to me. All who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Are you weary? You know, there's a difference between tired and weary. Weary is like the kind of tired you can't sleep off. Are you weary? Are you burdened? Are you tired of trying to earn your way to heaven? Jesus says, come. This is what I want you to think about, and then we're done. How are you going to respond to this invitation today? This is the invitation that's before you today. Jesus says, come. How are you going to respond? Some of you need to respond by turn, trust, and follow. Some of you have done that and you've wandered and you need to come back and repent and say, God, I want to make you Lord of my life because that's who you really are. Some of you have had a great time connecting with God this week and your response is to just sing praise and thanks to him. I don't know what's going on in your heart, but what I do know is Jesus is giving us an amazing invitation right now. How are we going to respond? Let's pray.